Support for IPR comes from the University of Iowa School of Planning and Public Affairs, still accepting applications for Fall 2024 Master of Public Affairs and Master of Urban and Regional Planning. Details at sppa.uiowa.edu. Our founders gathered in pubs to talk about politics, and so do we. Welcome to Pints and Politics. Tonight we gather in the brand new Big Grove Brewery in Cedar Rapids, where the Easy Eddy is flowing just like the Cedar River. <laughs> I'm Erin Jordan with the Gazette. On our panel tonight is Tom Barton, Deputy Chief of the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau, Todd Dorman, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor, and returning to our panel, hopefully for good, is Adam Sullivan, former Gazette columnist. All right, let's get started here. The South Carolina Republican primary is Saturday. It may be former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley's last shot to show she has a chance to defeat former President Donald Trump. South Carolina is also the state where she was governor. Todd, what are polls showing in South Carolina? Well, uh, one poll I know shows that 100% of political journalists are glad to be covering the South Carolina primary instead of the sub-zero sub Iowa caucuses. So I know, I, I mean, it's not a scientific survey, but I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, so depending on which poll you look at, Trump is somewhere in the low to upper 50s, sort of like this week in Iowa. And, uh, and, and, and uh, Nikki Haley is in the upper to lower 30s. So it seems like this is going to be another situation where where Donald Trump scores another victory, and it could be sort of a, the last blow to, to Nikki Haley's campaign. But you, you, know, you never know exactly what was going to happen. I mean, it, in 2008, Barack Obama was a 15-point favorite in New Hampshire and lost, to, shockingly, to Hillary Clinton. And so it's, you know, the only poll that counts is on primary day. But I think Trump clearly has the advantage, and I don't see much many obstacles left for him between now and the Republican nomination. Aaron, you said it you know, may be her last shot to try to you know, make something out of the primary. Like, there's an old saying, like when you lose something, it's always the last place you look for it. It's up to Nikki Haley what her last shot is. Like Iowa was her last shot, and she fell short of what she needed to do. New Hampshire was her last shot, and she fell short of what she needed to do. So, I mean, this has been writing on the wall for a long time. Like we always knew that Trump was likely going to walk away, run away with this nomination. Um, so, it, it, I mean, it seems like after South Carolina, I mean, that's kind of the end point on her horizon probably, but I mean, it's, it's kind of embarrassing for her to be in this position in the state that she once led and where she did pretty well electorally. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's been over for a couple months now, even before Iowa, and maybe it'll finally be over after South Carolina. Republican National Committee Chair Rona McDaniel is expected to step down after South Carolina, which would pave the way for RNC leaders tapped by Trump. What will this change in leadership mean for Haley or other Republicans who don't support Trump as the GOP nominee for president? Adam, I don't know if you want to start us off. I, I don't think it means that much um, because it's, it's been Trump's party for a long time. Like, Ronna McDaniel is, is willingly stepping aside because Trump doesn't like her. Um, so, that, I mean, that's a pretty good indication that he's already got pretty good influence there. 
it's also not clear to me that Nikki Haley won't yet fall in line. I think when she's asked if she would endorse Trump, she's either said conflicting things or she's kind of danced around the question. So it's not clear to me that by election day, Nikki Haley is going to be an, an anti-Trump Republican. Uh, there's still some rumblings that perhaps there's some independent or third party candidate out there. It's hard for me to see Nikki Haley getting on board with that. But as far as for you know, anti-Trump Republicans within the party, there are some of us, but we have, we have no influence at all. So it's been his party for a long time, and this is just one more sign of it. What's motivating this, I think, I know there's reports that Donald Trump was upset that the RNC was hosting debates. He thought they shouldn't help participate in debates. Um, the other thing is that the RNC's fundraising is way down, um, which that's its own problem. Fundraising doesn't have a ton to do with presidential elections just because they're so national and they're, they're so media saturated. Uh, but I, you know, Trump having his way with this uh, probably shouldn't surprise anybody. Isn't, isn't the RNC going to launch some silver sneakers to sell to... <laughs> to uh, and I think the other big question is, will, will uh, she be able to put Romney back in her name now that she's not, <laughs> she's not chair of the, the party because that was one thing she had to do that Trump, because Trump is not a Mitt fan, so... I, I heard there were some statements from Trump's um, daughter-in-law this week that the RNC would pay Trump's legal bills. Would slash could that happen? They've done it before, right? Uh, or maybe not Donald Trump's, but people in his orbit. I don't, I mean, and that was voted on by the RNC. My understanding is it's legal, but I think the campaign walked that back and said they, don't, they didn't expect that, but I, I don't see why they can't or perhaps would. All right, before we go on to the next question, I just wanted to let you guys know that Ben is traveling this week and Althea's under the weather. So we'll have them back next time, just in case you were wondering. All right, so a special counsel report earlier this month said President Joe Biden concealed classified records and shared some information with a ghostwriter, but that his actions didn't rise to the level of criminal charges. The most damning thing out of that report were allegations about Biden's memory. How have you seen that report trigger conversations in Iowa and, and elsewhere about aging and memory in connection with politics? I'll go again. <laughs> um, I, 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 certainly there was a, a new round of uh, commentary and reporting around that report, but um, this has been a thing for a long time, right? Uh, we have a very old president. Um, we had a very old president previously, and he's gonna be on the ballot again. We have two really old guys. This is, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally observational, so it's hard to draw firm things from it. To me, it seems like, I mean, Trump has a lot of issues separately. It doesn't seem like he's slowing down the way that I think when people see Biden on TV, when they do allow him to be on TV, I mean, he looks like a very old person because he is. And that's nothing against old people. I love old people. Uh, some of the old people in this room I really like even. <laughs> but I don't want any of you all to be president. <laughs> um, so, Ouch. you know, given these two choices against two old guys that have their own sets of problems, like you have to decide what you're going to decide, right? But I think there's anytime somebody in the national, not anytime, but a lot of times anyone in the national media comes out and says like, you know, we need to talk about Trump or Biden's too old. It's not too late to, to pull a bait and switch. Um, there's kind of like pushback against that. So it's confusing to me. One of the interesting things I read about, and I can't remember who the author was, but basically they were they were arguing that Washington is a, is a big-time gossip town. And Biden has been meeting with not only Democrats, but he, he meets with Republicans on, on issues. He's been meeting with Republicans on the, on the aid package that he's hoping to get passed for Ukraine and, and Israel. And this person basically argued that if he was completely losing it, 
and had done that in any of those meetings, that that would have been immediately leaked because there's nothing politicians like more than to leak that kind of stuff to the press. The fact that that hasn't happened suggests to him that, yeah, well, he's old and slowing down and has made some gaffes and things, that he's not sort of to the point where he's not no longer able to you know, meet and uh, discuss issues and make deals and that, that that's not happening. So, Well, and Joe Manchin from West Virginia was on NPR this morning kind of saying that very point, that he's had private conversations with Joe Biden and he was clear and lucid and so, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I can't imagine being president and having to do press conferences and talk out loud as much as he is because I, I have no idea what I would say. He'd probably, if, I'd probably be a pretty big gaff machine. Myself. We know what you would say, Todd, because we've been here with you. Yeah, right. I mean, yeah, who, who knows? In vitro fertilization treatments to help women get pregnant were halted by a major Alabama hospital this week after a state court ruling declaring frozen embryos are children. A Pew Research Center survey last fall showed four in 10 adults have used fertility treatments. I wonder, and you know, a question from the audience, I think it's kind of tongue in cheek, but it says, if a frozen embryo is a child, why can I not claim it as a dependent? <laughs> but seriously, I wanted to ask the panel, how politically powerful is this group of would-be parents, and how closely tied is this issue to abortion? Well, again, I mean, as, as with abortion itself, anytime you, the, the big hand of government sort of reaches in to change the way people make individual, very personal decisions, there's going to be a lot of pushback because, I mean, deciding whether to do in vitro is obviously something that you think should be between you and a doctor and your spouse and all of that, but in this case, uh, the government is stepping in and declaring that those are people, which, which certainly is going to complicate, if not, uh, you know, just take that option away from a lot of people. It seems like both with abortion and IVF, I mean, those family planning is very personal to people, and it is something that will actually motivate people to vote. Um, you know, there's a lot of things on the Republican culture war agenda that people might say, like, you know, I don't really appreciate that, but that's not what I'm going to vote on at the end of the day. Um, this is a set of issues that do motivate people um, potentially in, in swing districts. So I think it's important, um, you know, to the ex when you ask, you know, how, how related is this to abortion? I think it's, it's the motivation is extremely related because, it, I mean, it all stems from the same idea that, uh, you know, a, a life begins at conception. Um, and that's a view that I don't hold, but I think that people do hold in good faith. I think it's, you know, it's a reasonable position to hold. But it also, this situation shows that, you know, when you take that position to its natural extent, that you're treating um, em frozen embryos as, as humans, that it's like not really workable and that it's not palatable to a large group of people. So I think there's a lot of alignment between those two issues. And I'm, I'm interested to see like what the actual impact of this is because they're saying like IVF providers will not uh, operate under these, under these legal circumstances. And that would be like a major shift for people. Last month, we, were, we reported about how Congress was trying to agree on a bill that would provide financial aid to Ukraine and Israel and tighten security at the border. Um, but then Trump gave it a thumbs down, and now it seems less likely that a compromise can be reached. 
Now Biden's saying this week he will use executive order to better control the border. I don't know if the panel could speak to um, what the downsides of executive order versus uh, um, something passed by Congress. I mean, the downside with executive order is that it can always be overturned by the following administration, right? Um, in, in, as opposed to having Congress pass a law that um, you know would would survive administrations, there would be continuity to it, um, and it would have um, you know a greater force of law behind it, um, something that would stand up uh, well, depending on what they pass to, to legal challenge, to court challenges. Um, in, in, yeah, so, so there would be more certainty, more continuity, less chance of, um, you know, the next administration, you know, whoever that is, whatever party, from overturning that. This hour, we're listening to highlights of our Pints and Politics event. We'll be back in just a moment. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today we're listening to the latest Pints in Politics. It was recorded yesterday. I had to be away for this one, so Erin Jordan of the Gazette carried the host duties on her own. Let's go back to more highlights from that event. I'm Erin Jordan from the Gazette, and we're back with our panel, Tom Barton, Todd Dorman, and Adam Sullivan. The Iowa legislature today wrapped up its seventh week in session. Last Friday was the first funnel deadline, which, at which time bills must have passed a subcommittee of the House or Senate to proceed. A bill that would scale back the mission of Iowa area education agencies continued to cause concern for some Iowa parents and educators. Tom, could you tell us the status of the AEA bills? Yeah, so both the House and the Senate have um, passed different approaches to change the funding and the oversight and structure of Iowa's nine area education agencies, which provide special education support, media services, and, and other educational support services to Iowa school districts. Um, Governor Kim Reynolds proposed an overhaul of the agencies. The proposal met significant opposition from parents and administrators um, and House Republicans. So the Senate Education Committee passed an amended version of Governor Reynolds' bill, and um, under their bill, schools would receive 90% of their state special education funding, while the AEAs would receive the other 10%. Uh, The school districts could spend that money on the the AEAs, or they could contract with an outside party or provide the services themselves. Um, They would still have the legal legal obligation to educate students with disabilities. Um, The bill would also direct 60% of the funding for media services and educational support services, um, which are paid with property taxes to the school districts, um, who again then could either contract with the AEAs or another party for those services. 
AEAs that would retain uh, the other 40% of the funding. It also would create a division of special education within the Iowa Department of Education um, that would um, work with the AEAs um, on uh, oversight of providing special education services in Iowa. Whereas the, the House bill um, is kind of a, a significant departure from um, Governor Reynolds' plan and the Senate version, um, it would keep the area education agencies as the sole provider of special education services for uh, K-12 students and, and younger children. But then in 2024 and 2026, districts would be able to contract with other providers for media services and, and, and other services that they currently get from the AEAs. Um, and it would continue to send the money for special education services received um, from the federal government to the AEAs as, as happened now. That would remain status quo. Um, but state dollars and property tax dollars that currently go to the AEAs would go to the school districts um, that would then decide how to spend those funds. Um, the House bill would also bring more oversight and budget powers of the AEAs under the control of the Iowa Department of Education. But uh, in, in another departure from the governor's proposal and the Senate version is that it would establish a 10-member task force um, to study the AEAs. Um, it would be a task force um, led by legislative leaders of both parties, and um, they would assess and, and make recommendations about the services that, that AEAs, AEAs provide, uh, accountability, oversight uh, measures, um, et cetera. So Senate Democrats have criticized the Senate bill saying that it's, you know, not significantly different from, from Governor Reynolds' proposal and that we don't need a um, kind of wholesale change or overhaul of the area education agencies. Um, House Democrats said that they're still concerned with um, House Republicans' uh, version and how would it affect um, rural schools. There was a public hearing uh, yesterday on the House version, um, and parents um, spoke out, worried that it would create kind of this piecemeal fee-for-service um, model that could lead to inequalities and worsen outcome, outcomes for students across the state. They worry that small districts would struggle to provide equitable services um, to students with disabilities that, you know, your large urban school districts, your Des Moines or Cedar Rapids or Iowa cities, et cetera, wh whose contributions to the AEA system subsidize the small districts' services will opt out as they have the tax base and kind of the economy of scale um, to, to provide a comprehensive special education program where smaller districts don't have sufficient dollars to do so, and that even if they pooled their money together um, and decided to stay within the uh, AEA system, um, that the, the, the breadth, depth, and scope of the AEA services would be um, severely restricted. Um, you had some other parents who supported the bill saying that they're dissatisfied with the services um, that school districts and AEAs are providing um, to their students with disabilities and that um, the, the uh, proposals by Republicans would allow for more personalized attention to, to students with disabilities. You also heard from some school superintendents who said that um, the, the House bill would give more flexibility um, to the districts over how they use their special education dollars and would provide more accountability for the AEAs. Todd, what's your gut about these different bills? Like, which, what do you think is going to go forward? I mean, we, we have seen the number of parents and superintendents speaking against these pieces of legislation, but do you think they're going to pass? Well, first, 
I mean, this is the kind of detail they have to they have to keep up with when they're covering the legislature. It's this bill has been crazy. I mean, it's you had the proposal in the beginning, you've had the changes, you've had subcommittees, committees. It's uh, it's yeah, it's amazing to try to keep your eye on the ball. Uh, as far as uh, what was the question again? Just what's your gut? Do you- <laughs> Do you think we're, you know, even despite the large amount of um, speak, people speaking out about this, do you think it's going to happen? Well, I, I think the House bill probably offers the best bet, uh, just because I think the opposition to doing anything drastic in the House is, is really strong. Uh, maybe not so much in the Senate, although they have not voted on it in the, in the whole chamber. The governor made a mistake when she crafted this bill the way she did. If she wanted, if she sincerely wanted to make AEAs better, make special education better, there would have been a process that, you know, a fact-finding process where people, parents, stakeholders, educators, AEA people, everyone was called in, and a thoughtful proposal would have been made. But instead, you know, she's got, yeah, she's... She's, she's got a consultant who pointed to some test scores that don't look good, admittedly. I mean, uh, disabled kids in those assessments are falling behind other states and the national average. Uh, but, you know, and then, then you'll hear from people that say, well, that's one snapshot. Here are other numbers that show that AEAs actually are doing a good job, that special education is not failing. So these are all discussions that could have been hashed out like maybe last summer or sometime, if this was if this was really what the governor wanted, I I just you know I, I saw quotes that she's just like we need to do something big and we need to do something bold. Well, I I get that. That's you know you can that's fun to talk about on Fox News. You do something big. You do something big and bold. But if you're going to serve the students and parents and you know the the state well, you need to be thoughtful and careful in dismantling an entire education structure that has served the state fairly well for four decades. I was just going to say, Adam, this is a question from the audience. Is there any chance that this, um, you know, the audience calls it a dust-up, um, after which, after all, we're set up to, you know, could benefit or could hurt rural schools, might loosen Iowa Republicans' strong grip on rural Iowa voters? That's the question, I guess. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about how abortion is one of those issues where there's, you know, certain demographics that will, you know, vote based on that. And, and you know, they'd otherwise be Republicans, but they'll, they'll, they'll swap for that. Um, I think something uh, Tom said is crucial. You know, he talked about... Uh, the te- local tax base and economies of scale. Um, similarly to with the school choice bill, you saw some of these lawmakers, Republicans in very rural districts where really the school is the lifeblood. There's no other resources in these communities. It's, it's just the school districts. Um, you know, and they think that if you, know, if you affect the funding of a school district, that really affects the whole community. And so that's those situations where you're gonna have them willing to uh, 
um, to dissent from their own parties. Um, and then the political ramifications of that are, I think there were, uh, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were three or four races last cycle where Governor Reynolds endorsed uh, in a primary, a Republican primary, against somebody who opposed her school choice plan, and I think she, was, she batted 1,000 on those endorsements. Um, she, she did well. She, you know, most of her candidates won. Um, so yeah, I, I, that is, but as far as like, does that swing those districts the other way? Like, I really don't know. I mean, those, those, those areas are, are shrinking so fast, and they, you know, especially if, if these lawmakers' concerns are correct, and that pulling these funds really do, you know, have a detrimental impact to those communities, those communities just aren't significant voting blocks anymore. So, um, sad to see towns disappear, but that's probably like the political reality of it. Given what you described, Tom, as, as Kim Reynolds' political power, a question from the audience, what office, if any, will Kim Reynolds hold in 2028? I don't know, maybe none. Who knows? Maybe none? What are you hearing? Sorry. What I'm getting at is, is you know, I've heard rumors, rumblings, that, um, that, that, that maybe the governor will not run for re-election. Um, but again, that's all speculation. Adam, what are you hearing? I don't hear anything. I'm, I'm, not, I'm tuned out, but it's funny to hear that. I know you're all excited at the prospect of Reynolds not being governor, but how are you going to like Governor Ashley Hinson? Or, <laughs> or, or, <laughs> Do you think it's going to be better? Or, 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 or Governor uh, Brenna Byrd. Brenner, it's not going to be Rob Sand. I hate to break it yeah. to y'all. <laughs> I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the rumors that the, the scuttlebutt is, is, is that uh, the, the attorney general is kind of making some overtures, maybe testing the waters um, about potentially running for governor. Um, again, nobody's nobody's confirmed this. You know, nobody's said yes. I'm going to run. No, I'm not going to run. Um, but uh, you know, also playing into that is. Um, uh, Shortly before the Iowa caucuses, you had uh, Attorney General Byrd uh, campaigning with former President Donald Trump, and Donald Trump unsolicited saying that Brenna Byrd would make a great governor. Um, well, and I forgot about that. She, and, yeah. she could get his endorsement. It might be kind of scrawled on a piece of notebook paper from a federal prison, but, but at, least, at least, you know, it's still going to carry some weight somewhere. I think they, they use O-mail now, the offender oh. mail. Yeah, they have email. Oh. Yeah. That's too uh, bad. Speaking of it's Rob like Sand, dying. Um, you brought Rob Sand up, Adam. A bill allowing state agencies to bypass state auditor Rob Sand, the lone Democrat holding a statewide office, and get a private audit passed. The, 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 that's what state agencies could do, get, get a private audit instead of having state auditor Rob Sand um, overview their finances. That bill passed the Iowa Senate this week along party lines. Last year, both houses passed, and the governor signed a bill uh, a law limiting SANS access to records. How could private audits be different from what the state auditor does? So my understanding, and uh, one of my colleagues will jump in if I'm totally botching this, is uh, so for one thing, the private audits might be more expensive. I think that's what the LSA found, is that the, you know, that the rate that the auditor, auditor's charge, auditor's office incurs is less than you, you would pay for a private auditor, so that's one thing. Um, in a vacuum, I don't have a problem with this. Like, pr private accountants do audits for government entities all the time. Um, like, there are checks and balances in place. I know Auditor Sand is making the case that he would have le his office would have less oversight over these 
these audits than they do over like um, school district and city and mm. county audits, and he's concerned about that, and so that's something to be dealt with. But like, there is a way to to outsource this, outsource this privately the correct way and like in a in a equitable way. But I don't know for sure that that's what they're doing. Um, and I would also say, like in a broader context, like it's clear that this legislature is trying to diminish the power of the auditor's office, um, in part because they don't want the scrutiny that the auditor's office, you know, has over uh, Governor Reynolds' agencies, um, and also somewhat because they just don't like Rob Sand. You know, they see him as like a an aspiring politician. I, he's the only statewide Democrat at this point, right? Yes. Um, so they just don't like him. He kind of has a target on his back, and it's not surprising to see the Republicans target him in this way. Well, one the one, the, the oh, one problem with the bill that there, there isn't anything in there talking about whether those private audits would be available to the public. Now, I, I think they probably will be, but the bill doesn't address that. So that's one thing that could be a problem is if they get private audits, then you have a hard time getting, you know, a copy to look at. Well, and the other argument that, that uh, Auditor Sand has made is that this undermines the will of the voters, right, who elected him to this job, who elected them to this position. And, 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 and elected him to serve in this role, in this, in this capacity, um, whose duties and responsibilities are to, um, you know, serve as a, as a taxpayer's watchdog and have an oversight function over state agencies, and that... Um, you know, this bill, instead of, um, you know, having, having the auditor's office be the taxpayer's watchdog, would instead um, turn them into a lapdog. Todd, you wrote this week about Iowa being, quote, awash in bad bills for water quality. Which bills are you talking about? Oh, there's, uh, there's quite a list. Uh, Maybe pick your, your favorite, too. Well, I think the one that doesn't get a lot of attention is that, well, last year... The governor, as part of the reorganization effort, introduced executive order number 10. And so that basically gave her the ability to look at rules, and if she found that they were overly burdensome, I mean, actually, there's a person that she hires that serves at her pleasure, is called the Administrative Rules Coordinator. And so the Administrative Rules Coordinator, uh, for instance, there was a the, the DNR actually tried to do a little bit more with Chapter 65 rules governing uh, hog confinements or livestock confinements, CAFOs. And when it got to the the uh, gatekeeper, the administrative rules coordinator, they said that it was too burdensome and they, they sent it back. Now, that's an executive order, but there's a bill that would codify that and make it law that the governor's office would basically have red light, green light on administrative rules. That uh, Administrative rules are needed to carry out laws. I mean, you've got a bill that the legislature passes, then you've got to create rules to, to make sure that all works. And that's, that's a, a lot of power concentrated in the executive branch all of a sudden as far as rules are concerned. So that you, you might get the Environmental Protection Commission to actually protect the environment, which would be, I mean... Surprising, and and even if they did, then it could get the it could get the kibosh in the in the uh, in the from the administrative rules coordinator. And we'll be back in just a moment with more of this pints and politics edition. 
It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. And we're back with this special edition of River to River. Highlights from our Pints and Politics event. Let's go back to more highlights from that event. A Senate subcommittee passed a bill that would prohibit Iowa State universities from studying meat substitutes. What potential effects could this have on Iowa State University, which has animal science and food science programs? Tom, I don't know, I, I don't know that you know in depth about that, but do you think it could have an impact? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I didn't uh, follow that piece of legislation. I, I didn't go to the subcommittee or committee on that one. Um, There's just so many bills and so many things that were being run through the legislature. That's just one that um, I wasn't able to get to. But I would have to think that it would have an impact on um, you know research universities like Iowa State University that do a lot of research into um, you know plant-based sciences and, and cell cultivation and um, you know developing different um, products you know be it from from soy or, or insects or, or, or what have you um, so you would think that you know it would you know inhibit or, 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 or hinder a lot of research or at least some research that probably is going on at the university or your you know research that maybe is not active or underway, but um, that, uh, you know, a professor or researcher there has been thinking about, been contemplating, you know, wants to move forward with, and now they would, they would be halted from I, doing that. Just any time politicians start telling scientists what they can research and what they can't is always a, a bad idea. Uh, so, I mean, and it's not rare that it happens. But I think this bill is particularly not well done. Yeah. So well, that was an amendment. To, it was. Too. It was right. Yeah, right. It, it, initially, my understanding is the bill just started out as as, as a labeling bill, right? It just yeah. had to do with yeah, like saying was, if you had a yep, non-meat product, it had to be labeled as such. Right. 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 And and then was amended either in, in subcommittee or committee um, to insert that prohibition for uh, the the regent universities and 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 researching. Um, you know, I guess meat alternatives. I, I did find this um, in, in reporting from, from one outlet that I thought was interesting. Um, they quoted a Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat uh, from Des Moines, um, who talked about um, this bill seems to have the effect of knocking the peanut out of George Washington Carver's hand before he could get started. <laughs> uh, well, love a good sound bite. I mean, with, you know, if this, if this bill were, were you know, enforced nationally, the Impossible Burger would have been literally impossible. So, and my daughter, she likes those, and I, I think they're kind of dry, yeah. but it's okay, it's each their own. Yeah, and I, I think it was uh, Senator um, Dotzler, um, who either during the subcommittee or the committee meeting, yeah. it, it, it talked about how he worried that potentially this bill would um, 
prohibit research into um, soy-based products. And you have to think about, you know, how much the, the, the soybean industry in, in, in Iowa, you know, relies on that research and innovation um, and, and developing, you know, new markets for new products for soy-based products. And that, you know, if this bill is passed and, and signed into law would, again, potentially be a blow to Iowa's huge soybean industry. Yeah. I, just to piggyback on that really quick, I think it's crucial because it's uh, like meat alternatives are going to continue to keep growing. There's going to be a, a there's always going to be a market for meat, but this is a growing market. And like, where do you want it to take place? It could take place here in Iowa, or it could take place anywhere. We could use soybeans or whatever. And it's this is part of a broader movement where I, th- I believe Florida and Tennessee have bills right now to actually ban the sale and production of uh, lab-grown meat specifically. So there's other kinds of alternative meats, but lab-grown meat specifically. Uh, I think what motivates this, in part, it's like it's a culture war thing, um, but really it's like protectionism for agriculture, which I think is really misguided because agriculture can be used for these other things, right? Like, you know, they can they can adapt. So I, it, it's a it's a terrible idea. Well, you well. can't, and you can't. I mean, you know, they they talk about the free market, and the free market is calling for these products. I mean, it's it's just like, you know, defending ethanol by being against electric cars. I mean, it's if people want to buy electric cars, they're going to buy electric cars no matter, you know, if that makes ethanol people unhappy in Iowa. It's just, I mean, the science and the products are going to lead people to want them, and and more and more people are concerned about the climate and li- and livestock. Production is a pretty big part of uh, the global warming picture, so. Six weeks after the Perry school shooting, which killed a student, the principal, and the shooter, what firearms legislation are we seeing at the Iowa Capitol? Yeah, so uh, House, uh, House Republicans advanced a bill that would create a new permitting process for Iowa school districts to arm trained staff. So the bill passed out of committee on a party line vote with Democrats opposed um, ahead of the, the funnel deadline. So it's now eligible for debate and a, a vote by the full House. Um, the bill would create a, a new permit process, as I said, that would allow employees at Iowa's um, public and private schools and colleges to carry a firearm. Um, it's, it's worth noting, Iowa code currently allows approved school staff to carry a gun on campus should they choose. But in uh, two districts in northwest Iowa put policies in place, but ended up having to rescind them to avoid being dropped by their insurance carrier, um, who wouldn't provide liability coverage if staff were allowed to, to carry weapons. And so the, the legislation looks to kind of uh, address that issue, although somewhat indirectly, um, by again putting in place a permitting process um, for any employee carrying a weapon on school grounds during school hours. Um, and it does have fairly significant training requirements. Um, it would also provide qualified immunity and indemnify school districts for the reasonable use of force in a workplace. Um, but there's no mention of insurance in the bill other than that. But um, it, it seems like lawmakers with this bill are trying to, to bring insurers back to the table. I should note, it, it's completely up to school districts to decide whether they want their employees to be armed. Um, and it does provide some grant money to districts who want to hire uh, school resource officers or private security for their high schools. Um, so really kind of trying to facilitate this, um, not forcing districts um, to do it. Uh, there's separate legislation um, that, uh, that House Republicans have put forward that aims to kind of bolster 
school security infrastructure. So it will require schools to complete a uh, comprehensive review of their safety emergency response plans um, and submit that to, to law enforcement. Uh, I would create a fund to install radios that are capable of accessing the statewide interoperable communication system in all school buildings that, that don't currently have them. So this is the, I guess, the radio system that helps law enforcement to coordinate the response to the shooting at Perry High School. They would also have to do a firearm, uh, or excuse me, it would also implement a firearm detection software um, in, in three schools through a pilot program. Um, it would create a task force to recommend school safety standards and building codes. And then it would also uh, require schools starting in 2026 to meet these school safety standards before um, using state or local funding on like athletic facilities. Okay, that's a lot. I, I wanted to kind of change gears a little bit with all this legislation being considered in Des Moines. You know, that was just one issue that you were talking about, you know, several different pieces of legislation. Which one bill do each of you think hasn't gotten enough attention in this legislative session so far? I don't know. Adam, do you want to start? Do you have one in mind? I don't know that it hasn't gotten enough attention. Honestly, I don't pay as much attention as I used to, so I don't know what is getting attention. But one thing I would, I would pull out that we didn't talk about today is there is a bill to like regulate these hemp THC products, which is, have come on the scene in the last couple of years. Um, this basically came from the farm bill that they passed several years ago where they loosened up the restrictions on hemp. Um, allowed, like, as long as it comes from a plant with low THC, you can put some THC in there. I think they're even selling it in here tonight, some THC drinks. <laughs> uh, my understanding is, is the, the bill that they're talking about, which it could change form, um, it, it wouldn't ban these things, but it would basically put some guardrails on it, which I think was pretty predictable. Like, it, this kind of snuck up on them that this was going to be the reality of these being sold in bars and convenience stores. Um, so it was predictable that they were going to put some limits on it, some age and volume limits. Obviously, me, radical libertarian, I wish they wouldn't. I think we've been selling these things. Nothing is, as far as I know, like there's been no detrimental impacts. I think it's fine. Um, but I think uh, it's, it's like a huge sign of how far cannabis has come that these things are being sold in Iowa, and the legislature's first reaction is not just to like halt it altogether. Um, so I, we're making progress, and I think. You know, Reynolds has said she's not going to be the governor to sign this, but, you know, I don't think it's... In 10 years, I think you'll be able to buy real weed here in Iowa. So, so how, many, how many have tried the, the hemp drinks? All right, can we do a, we can do a noise poll? How many yeah, have tried yeah. um, the hemp drinks that are available in Iowa? Let's hear your applause. Okay. Yeah. That's Squares. Okay, so uh, another question from the audience. Um, the, the Census of Agriculture came out last week, and it shows that in Iowa we have um, more hogs, but fewer hog farms, so, so larger, more consolidation of livestock farming. The, the question from the audience is, will there be more hogs in Iowa in 2030 than there are today, or will something kind of control that um, expansion of, of animal agriculture there? and more or less people in Iowa in 2030. Oh, yeah, the meat, uh, yeah, maybe yeah. depend on the meat substitute research, yeah. Well, will, will people still be eating bacon and pork chops? And I, I assume probably they will. So you think the demand would grow and yeah. So we'll probably have, I mean, what, how many, what do we, is it? Oh, it's like eight, eight hogs per person. Yeah, is it? 23 20, million. 3 million? Yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, that's, uh, we should give them the right to vote. Look at that. Think of the electoral college, how many electoral votes we could have with all those, all those smart pigs. Um, how many of you listen to NPR and listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? All right, one of the contests on that show is lightning fill in the blank. So I decided instead of a kicker for this, this episode of Pints and Politics, I was going to give these guys a, a quiz, um, kind of a fill-in-the-blank quiz. I have 15 questions, and they're going to try to get 10 of the 15 collectively among the That's three the of them. Credit? And they don't know, they, they didn't get to see these in advance. So, and I've got some sound effects because it's radio. So if they get the answer right, here's what we've got. Okay, if they get the answer wrong. Okay, all right. Caitlin Clark, to become the NCAA record holder for career scoring, beat this player's record. Oh, I have no idea. It's, uh, it's Plum, I can't. Kelsey. Kelsey. All right. Name one high school sports tournament this, this month. <laughs> one of the... The state wrestling tournament was wrestling. Uh, All right, that's two out of two. This city's mayor resigned after being charged with sex abuse. Washington. Tom and Adam, you guys are really falling down on the job here. Well, you gotta really dig into the paper to get some of that stuff. Yeah, okay. This labor group said they would consider striking over a bill in the Iowa State House that would make it easier for the state to decertify unions. Teamsters? All right. Iowa has the dubious distinction of ranking number two in the nation in new diagnosis of this. Cancer. Name one of the things Iowans need to stop doing to reduce cancer rates. Drinking, Drinking. alcohol. There we go. Raise your glass, folks. Uh, walking too much. Running? No. Uh, Push-ups? Also not mentioned, smoking. Oh. Okay. The Henry Dorley Zoo, which is in Omaha, which is almost Iowa, has this new kind of animal. Chupacabra. No, I did hear something from the audience. Why don't you listen to your audience members? Panda. Panda. But what color panda? Red. Red. Yeah, there we go. All right. It's like black and white and red, right? <laughs> this Iowa Community College inaugurated a new president this week. Kirkwood. Oh, you guys so cheated. Yes. All right. Good. All right. Which Iowa lake had a charity fundraiser where a car falls through the lake and the car fell through earlier than ever on February 8th? It's a thing. I've heard of it. Is it, is it Clear Lake or Spirit Lake? No? You're heading the right direction. Okaboji. Okay. There we go. A little birdie told me. Yeah. This city as Iowa's only urban trout stream. Cedar Rapids. You guys! All right, Cedar Rapids. It, it's McLeod Run. Bonus points if you can answer why McLeod Run has been in the news recently. Because they have the thing you said. Fish died? 
There we go. Two, two fish kills were reported recently. One, there was a, a fine that was levied to the city of Cedar Rapids, and then we were just announcing the fine, and then that very next, that same day, they had another fish kill. So we did, do we still have an urban trout stream, or is it just a, <laughs> an urban stream? I think there's still some trout okay, there. Okay, all right. What celestial phenomenon will happen April 8th? Uh, eclipse. All right. We, we won't really be able to see it fully in Iowa, but you if you go, go to, to like Indiana go, go or something. Southern Illinois. Yes, there's yeah. some other places. In fact, that's, there's a Carbondale in there. They were full eclipse for the last one, which is pretty unusual that one place gets it twice. See, you know so much about this. Iowa Western Community College in Council Bluffs discovered 109 people trying to scam the system to get financial aid. What are these scammers called? I was told these were going to be easy. <laughs> I don't know. So, holes? Who? They're, they're called ghost students. Oh. All right. That's the only one you guys have gotten wrong, so that's good. All right, the last question. Which movie featuring a green-skinned ogre will be the subject of a rave party in Des Moines? Shrek. Really? Seriously? Seriously. The Des Moines Register reported Woolies in Des Moines will host a Shrek-themed rave Friday night. So you can go dressed as Shrek, Princess Fiona, Lord Farquhar, Donkey, and dance to EDM music the whole night. Which legislator is likely to be there, Tom? Ooh. I think Sammy Sheets. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank our panelists. We've got Todd Dorman, Gazette Insights and Opinion Editor. Tom Barton, Gazette Political Reporter. And Adam Sullivan, former columnist. And that does it for this edition. Pints in Politics, recorded yesterday evening. I had to be away, so Gazette reporter Aaron Jordan hosted solo this time. Find out how you can attend future Pints in Politics at thegazette.com. Our producer and audio editor today, Samantha McIntosh. Sound engineer, Jim Davies. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.